everybody. <laughs> Welcome to the Phil Krause Survival Podcast. That just made me laugh. <laughs> I did make you laugh. Uh, I'm the host, Mike, and I'm here today with our co-host, um, Kurt Hohan. Yeah, formerly known as. Formerly I, known I, as. I've been off a, a couple of the last episodes, but I was graciously, or graciously invited back to co-host. That's That's been on purpose. We actually <laughs> planned that because there's like an out, yeah. so, so we're just making moves right now. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, so to, there's a lot of things going on right now. I mean, I'm surrounded by people who are microanalyzing my every move yeah. uh, and every word, which is really scary. You have to look at everybody. I don't. I can't. My neck cr- cranks <laughs> down, so I just stare at this bottle of water, and I'm, I feel safe. Um, but we're, we're actually in a, at the Fieldcraft Survival uh, Fall Expo, which is in Prescott, Arizona, at the HQ. Uh, thank God we don't have to travel. <laughs> yeah. Um, but a lot of the same faces that we saw in Texas last uh, spring are here again today, and then we got some new faces. That's right. Um, that's right. That's right. Um, also, uh, being that it's the expo, we have a guest speaker today by the name of Jeffrey. <laughs> Good morning, Jeff. Morning. Thanks for uh, coming out here and, and doing this. If you guys listen to the podcast, uh, then you know that Jeff was on a recent podcast. What was that podcast uh, episode on? Um, it was on... Resiliency? Um, resiliency, trauma. Yep. Resiliency PTSD. and trauma. PTSD. Yep, yep. Um, Jeff is a neuro slash behavioral slash psychologist thingy. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I Tell do us your That's his official title. Yeah, thingy. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, like we said in the last podcast, um, uh, you know, I was a Navy and Coast Guard diver. EMT, law enforcement officer, got out, did a bunch of educational crap, and uh, kind of split my time between clinical psychology and neurobehavior, and uh, finishing up my uh, internship and residency down here, while I uh, also specialize in um, working with first responders and veterans on uh, trauma. I kind of focus on trauma, resilience, post-traumatic growth, and then uh, also learning outcomes from... um, like mixed reality, virtual reality for Microsoft. I contract with them as a as a research scientist. That's a hell of a resume. Yeah. You got a, a lot going <laughs> on. Um, how many years of education is it required to be a clinical oh, psychologist? Jesus. Um, <laughs> so it's about it, for, it's about minimum for a clinical PhD. It's about a minimum of about nine or ten years. Um, but I added, you know, because I've got. Um, I also do disaster response. It's just, it's been a long, long time, a lot of research. Um, but it's, you know, it's all been worth it. It's all come finally coming to a head. Uh, but it allows me to work with you guys and, you know, a bunch of other people. And it allows access to a lot of different areas that a lot of clinical uh, psychologists don't get to. So it's all been worth it, man. It's, it's a long time coming, but, um, you know, producing research, uh, peer-reviewed research on first responders and trauma and resilience, uh, it's a big deal right now, so it's 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 been a long time coming, Mike, but it, uh, it's 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 been worth it. It's awesome, man. What's cool about Jeff's situation is uh, he was once a veteran, so he knows how to dumb stuff down. <laughs> <laughs> and when it comes to all the stuff Mongo we're talking, talk. <laughs> I mean, it's very. I mean, a lot of the topics that we talk about are very complex in, in the science, but you know how to communicate it well to uh, us uh, lower on the totem pole folks. <laughs> 
Well, <laughs> I appreciate that, Mike. And this uh, this subject, I think that we're going to go on today, can go. We can go as deep and as high as you want to go. I think this gets really, really complicated. So there's a lot, a lot of great questions, a lot of great uh, information on here. So um, I'm 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 glad we're doing this. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And then um, before we get into the the topic, which is going to be survival psychology and survival uh, mindset and kind of the science behind it. We'll call it survival science. Sure. All right. Sure. Um, let's talk about a little bit of what's going on in the news because uh, most of the people that are in this room, actually, uh, a large percentage of the room is actually from California. And so this, am I. Yeah, it's, <laughs> so are we. It's yeah. crazy. We're born in California. <laughs> born there. Born and raised there. Um, yeah, likewise. Well, what's crazy is these California fires. Yeah. And Dude. right now... It's 70 people with 1,000 people unaccounted for. So I'm assuming, based on paradise burning down last week, that this is legitimately like an actual 1,000 people that are unaccounted for. It's not, it's not, a, it's not probably a fluff number. Yeah. yeah I, uh, I actually had one of the uh, fire districts that I work with, uh, pretty much a lot, uh, several of the fire departments I work with actually have crews sent down there. They're working now. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of a crazy situation. What's well, it? It's a, it's, well, one, it's the most destructive fire in California or California history right now. It's also taken the most lives out of any California wildfire yeah. in history. The yeah. number of people displaced is like, oh, it's crazy too. Yeah. Like it's the hundreds. shelter, they're running yeah. out of shelters and yeah. And then, uh, Will, our buddy, Will, uh, Harbin from Kickside just sent me, uh, some pictures yeah. and, the city. Um, the city is just, it's insane. The yeah. air quality is like Beijing, Beijing, yeah. China right now. Yeah. yeah, it's terrible. Now, you know, when we're looking at disasters like that, and I know part of what you've done and we talked about is having resiliency training and, mm. you know, coming in after traumatic events for first responders. Yep. How does, how does, you know, when you have a first responder, what we don't think about is the first responders and, and catastrophes. We typically think about the victims of the tragedy not even taking account that all these first responders who are going in and out, seeing bodies, uh, seeing the actual, um, the you know, carnage, their own communities burned yeah. to the ground, yeah. how it affects them long term. Yeah, so that's actually something that we don't define all that well in uh, research, uh, just because first responders have a tendency to have to deal with multiple levels of trauma. So we kind of classify trauma in three different ways primary trauma. So Let's say if I go to stab Kurt, that's primary trauma. I'm doing trauma to Kurt. Then there's secondary trauma, which is you witnessing me do trauma to Kurt. And then there's tertiary or compassion fatigue or vicarious trauma. We all have this, this mirror neuron system because we're such social creatures. We're, we're intimately social. We need each other for sort of healthy community and, and individual health. And when I, ev- I listen or witness other people's trauma, I take some of that on as my own. Um, and so first responders have a tendency to get that compounded over and over and over and over again. And also guys deployed on several deployments over and over and over again. And we just do not define it that well. Are we getting better at it, right? Our neuroscience and clinical psychology is beca- is becoming less disparate. Be- be- before they were very, very separate sort of disciplines. And they're starting to come together now because our 
neuroscience is getting better and looking at the physiological changes in the brain and the neuroendocrine system and it's it's been kind of significant um so yeah it's 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 a pretty tough situation for first responders now, what was the last one that you mentioned you said because uh, there's a term for that right the last type of uh, trauma what was that type 3 vicarious trauma vicarious trauma and and this is like, you know, me and Kurt used to make fun of fobbits inside the FOBs that we operated in um, because they never went outside the wire. Who doesn't? Or they said a rocket flew over the fire base and it was scary. <laughs> yeah. Well, they get all CIBs and there's all right. kinds of stuff, complexities to it. But that makes me think about those guys because I've seen, you know, whether you're at the VA and the guy that you're seeing is like, yeah, thank God you're a special operations guy because I usually get the postal clerks and the admin clerks. But what they're, what they're not realizing is those people who aren't even exposed to trauma type 1, type 2 are hearing the war stories. It's outside of their gate or their fence, so they don't have to be directly exposed. No, so consider this, that um, uh, I just, just got back from a uh, conference yesterday, um, and the, one of the presenters cited a statistic that states that uh, over 60% of trauma, just the psychologists, therapists, social workers, et cetera, will experience burnout within about three to four years. Um, because when you have primary or secondary trauma, you can't, if you actually, if you actually care about the person that is, that is witnessing that trauma, you will take on some of that yourself. It's just, it's not necessarily inescapable, but it's pretty close to it. And so you witnessing other people's traumatic events absolutely significantly affect, affects your psychology and physiology. And so it's, it's, that's, that's how close we are um, so, uh, from, from a sociological perspective. Our health is linked to other people's health, um, you know, with few exceptions. And, and uh, typically those few exceptions, the lone wolf model is a, is a, is a pathological model. It's not healthy. Yeah, it's, now, what's standing out to me is like because we always associate trauma with something negative, like it's a negative mm -hmm. uh, impact on uh, you know your psyche or you know physiologically. But is there any benefit to you know seeing like because what the first thing you said when you said that type three, I thought about how we used to put uh, pictures of dead service members or video of dead service members on the media. Right. And then it was like, you know, it was a dead service member that was draped with a flag. And part of me was like, America should see that because it's a part of war and right. they should be empathetic and better understand the totality the of what they're sending their men and women, uh, the young men and women off to do for the country. Is there any kind of like... You know, is it, does it drive any other factors in some, some positive way? Yeah, so, you know, I, like I explained before, I, te I tend to take a strengths-based approach to this. So I, I want the individual to be resilient, right? And I want to build people's resilience rather than protect them from all these things that we know happen and we know are always going to happen. And, and so, um, you know, I want to be very, very clear, and I don't want to medicalize trauma exposure all the time. Like, just to be clear, it's about 70% of the time individuals are exposed to trauma, we see normal healing, which is why even though I, I work with fire departments and districts and I will respond to acute behavioral emergencies, I don't stick my hands in trauma exposure in, in, in that acute sense because I know 
that I am more likely than not to screw up a normal healing process. Like I want them to figure out that they are not made of glass and they are not super, super sensitive to everything. And more likely than not that they will come out either normal, just the same as they were before, or they will experience something we call post-traumatic growth. And we talked about that a little bit the last time. But people do. They they can grow from trauma exposure uh, more often than not. It's just that occasionally um, when things become out of order, you know, we have we have – 150 plus cognitive biases and memory errors and and uh, physiological biases that shift our our attention and our memory when those become disordered when our thoughts become disordered from our behaviors those become disordered from our emotions and those become disordered from the way we deal with other people that's when we see problems my mind is blown. My mind is blown. I was thinking of that emoji with the exploding head. That I was. It's what what makes me if like as a statement, I just think in my head. I go, okay, so trauma is bad because it does some bad things. But ultimately, to grow as a person, you have to experience trauma, and shielding yourself from trauma or shielding your loved ones from trauma. Is it necessarily the, uh, the best, best practice? No, because then you become you. You don't even know what sheltered. that feels like. Yeah, you become completely sheltered, and 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 you don't like the the relative nature. If you've never been hurt before, what happens when you get a tiny tiny cut and you're an adult? Yeah, you can't. You, you don't know how to adapt to that, right? You you learn to grow from trauma as well. So yeah, I want to be super super careful not to pathologize trauma exposure because it's there. What are we gonna do? You're gonna end up losing somebody in your life, uh, meaningful in your life at some point, right? And when we can sort of um, conceptualize that as a collective in an individual within a supportive collective, our resilience becomes much, much greater. Wow. I like that. That's yeah. yeah. That's we should, we should uh, adopt that more often and communicate about it more often because I think the victim mentality that we, we tend as a society love to nurture because it feels good for we, some reason. We do, right? It's, it's called sick role behavior. We have a fancy clinical term for it because it gets us attention. Right. Like if I'm injured, not only do I get extra attention from other people, but I also so there's positive reinforcement. Right. Then there's this negative reinforcement. So negative reinforcement means increasing behavior because I'm removing a stimulus, mean, meaning that you do it more for more attention. Yeah. You do it more because, well, you get out of work or you get out of doing responsibilities that you don't like to do. So there's positive and negative reinforcement associated with this sort of sick role behavior. And some people just integrate it into their identity. Wow. Like it becomes part of them, right? Yeah, I've seen I that. am the injured <laughs> I am the injured person. Oh yeah. I am the, the injured wing. warrior. I am the injured whoever. Yeah. And I get that sort and I sort of incorporate that. And then when you challenge that, I'm all of a sudden challenging who you are. Your and, identity. Yeah. yeah. And then it's people get real defensive. So. What 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 part of uh like people who do that is what what clinically is is that is it a term for that not necessarily specifically uh, i just term. wanted to hashtag it for a <laughs> bit, like, i wanted to drop that bomb on people yeah no that that's not necessarily a specific term you know the the clinical uh, implications of that are really complicated and we see it in different ways it could be it could be more a depressive or an anxious presentation or mm-hmm. you know full ptsd or adjustment etc but we typically 
the real the the reality is that we typically really try very hard not to pathologize things, but uh, you know when it comes down to it, if people need help, we need to figure out where they fit. Kurt's always pathologizing me <laughs> every day, analyzing. Um, let's let's switch back. <laughs> let's switch into the uh, topic at hand. And uh, I remember the first gunfight I was in in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and it was a base attack. It started with uh, one hundred seven mil. mil-, mil- eh- Millimeters, millimeter rockets, which you could launch off of a rock and it self stabilizes. So you just gotta, you, you need just a gotta rock. aim it right. Yeah, a rock yeah, and a yeah, nine yeah. bolt, and you could send it. Send the hell mary. Um, it was, so we started getting those in, which is probably the scariest thing if you've ever been attacked by any weapon. It's probably the scariest weapon to get attacked. It's got like a kill radius of like five hundred meters. It's something ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And I remember uh, when it was going on, I had I was hyped up. I was all uh, amped up. But during it, I got on a 50 cal that a civil affairs dude was uh, failing to operate. Mm. And I started shooting and went through that and then ran across the fire base to get some Afghans and then shot some more. Did a whole bunch of stuff. After it was all said and done, uh, I had my hearing intact. And yeah. I never wore ear pro the whole thing. So I, I read books by Grossman on killing, on combat. And he talked about auditory exclusion. I never realized that I would be you know, I, I would, you know, live that. Right. And it, it was the first kind of uh, time in my life where I actually was very interested in what was going on with me because I wasn't myself. I was like in this primal state and I was amped up. And then as I slowly evolved through special operations, and I know Kurt uh, has been the same way, um, a lot of the things that were meant to protect me wasn't retained. Hmm. So then I get in a gunfight with no ear pro and I would I'd literally hear my ears go beep 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 <laughs> as I shot every yep, single round yep, yep. and completely Absolutely. deaf. Um <laughs> as I get more I guess accustomed to it. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the um things that happen uh when you're in fear or you're doing this yeah survive fight or flight. Yep. Let let's kick this off. How do Okay, so typically, um, I've got some pictures up on the board, and this is not an actual uh, patient of mine at all. This is from a, a clinical presentation I did as, a, as an instructional for other uh, clinicians. But um, your brain operates on a, what you see there is a bunch of tracks, right, like kind of squiggly lines. And your brain operates on specific tracks that communicate in different areas of your brain. We've, we've developed beyond just specific uh, areas and are looking at communication between those. And so when you become stressed, there are two different types of stress and you guys will all kind of recognize these types. There's you stress and distress. So you stress comes and that's sort of that good stress, right? The How do you, how do you spell that? What is E-U it? stress. E, okay. You stress. So when that means like, oh, I give a shit, I'm going to respond to this versus I don't and I'm just going to sit there on my ass with my thumb in my butt and not do anything. And then there's distress where you've kind of gone beyond that curve of, of I can operate well and you're frozen or you're running or you can't remember shit or these types of sort of pathological presentations. Um, and so what happens, right? You, that initial, um, 
uh, epi and norepi dump, right? You get the, the neurotransmitters hit first. Uh, and then your sort of endocrine system hits and your heart rate increases, your respiratory rate increases to match your heart rate. And then you start dumping hormones, aldosterone, vasopressin, cortisol, et cetera. And when you mean dump, you mean actually like this like chemical system floods, yes, yep. flooding yep. into yep. your bloodstream. Your pituitary just dumps all this signaling system just starts dumping all these hormones, getting ready, getting you ready to either fight or flee. Right. I know, I know you guys have been in many, many fights. When you get in a fist fight, you remember that uh, you're not feeling a whole lot of pain while you're in the fist fight. Yeah. And the, like all the little scrapes and bruises and shit don't show up for about an hour or two after. You know, that's cortisol. Uh, vasopressin and aldosterone kind of cut off your uh, convoluted distal tubule and your kidneys so you're not peeing, so you're retaining uh, most of your water so that if you do get cut, you have more water to maintain uh, your um, uh, blood volume, right? And then, you know, your GLUT4 receptors in your muscles increase so that they can uptake as much glucose as they can in your bloodstream. Your liver dumps extra glucose. Um, you know, the erector pili in the back of your neck stand up on end so you can sense wind changes behind you, right? I mean, your whole body keys up. Yeah. Um, and you're just, I mean, you're keyed up and it, it, initially your brain becomes more aware of more things like, right. Your, your auditory, uh, receptors increase your, the, the, pupils. what about vision? Same thing. Your pupils yeah. get bigger. I've experienced that. Like one of right? the first bad gunfights I was in where I didn't know if we were going to walk away from it. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like I had, uh, it, it was almost like a sixth sense. Were of, you sleeping? <laughs> no, oh, okay. <laughs> no. I mean, you know, this story, we've talked about it before, but, uh, but when I got out of the vehicle and actually started fighting uh in the street is when everything it was like uh it, it almost was like the matrix so things would like slow, slow down. down yep and it was like you know you could see people moving and like all these different things happening and i'm like taking all this in and i was like holy shit yeah yeah you know and then fighting and then maneuvering and doing all this stuff so yep so uh, you know our 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 psychophysiology has has evolved over millions and millions of years to be super super good at acute response um and so but that it's also protective right like typically you know going th in the military we get titrated into stress responses we don't just get thrown into combat you get stressed out by uh first boot camp boot camp really isn't much except for sleep deprivation and you know you just kind of the cultural indoctrination it's not it's not hard and then you but if you go start to go into special operations uh and combat training and then you sort of get titrated into combat training um you know, that your your instructors, they threaten to kick you out every day, every minute, right? <laughs> I mean, right? There's, yeah, there's a gate you, like every you're day. You're on the bubble, right? man. You get one no-go, yeah, and yeah. then the next one you're going home, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So that stressor, that is, it's still nothing. It's constant, yeah. It's still nothing compared to like almost getting shot, but it's it's still, it's that stress. Can you handle? Yeah, it sucks, right? But it, you can you handle that sort of stress? And some people dilapidate because they're not they may not, they may not be there for the right reasons. Mm. Um, and I know you guys have seen that. Yeah. Um, while some people are, they really are. 
you know, dedicated to the military, to the uh, men and women that are the left and right. And typically those are the people, they may not be the best athletes in the world, but they make it. They just grind it out because they're there for the right reasons. Um, but our brain is super protective of our thought processes and auditory olfactory. We, they will shut things out that, that in the moment are not helpful. However... <laughs> As you guys well know, you know, a couple hours after, shit starts to come back. Yeah. Or yeah. six months later, right. you're like, wait a minute, did I, where did that come from? Where did that dream come from? Where did that image come from? I don't remember smelling that. Like, I've got a collection of smells that I just cannot get rid of. Uh, I get, you know, images every once in a while. But for me, it's mostly smells. Mine was uh, the transitional process, actually leaving the Army. Um, and then all the stuff that I'd compartmentalized for years, like all the memories, yeah. like I started from the beginning of my career and then went all the way to the end and thought about all the different things that I was exposed to. It was kind of like a, like, Hey, this part of my life is ending. Yeah. Um, but like the totality of what that, uh, did in my brain yep. and like everything that I saw and experienced, like I thought about, you know, before I left, which was actually a really weird experience because I'd never really kind of digested certain things. Yeah. Um, and so like revisiting all that stuff, I think it was good one for healing. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and then, and then just being cognizant of, of the things that I did go through, you know, to be able to maybe identify, identify things for myself to help myself if, if I was dealing with something. Yeah. You know, that's, that's your, uh, final realization that, you know, I'm not going to get dumped into combat theater anymore and I need to change my identity. What does that even look like? You know, this, I really truly like this sort of, um, that philosophy of it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. But, and you've already done the warrior part and now you're just trying to figure out yeah. how to be the gardener part. And it's not easy, right? Because no. <laughs> being a warrior has a tendency, and Mike and I kind of talked about this in the last podcast, to sort of set you up in a reality that has a tendency to be black and white. Mm. White, right? You're either good or bad. You're either go or no go. You're either an asset or liability. And all of a sudden you're thrown into this sort of soup that's a ton of gray area. And you're like, what the fuck? Dude, what am I doing? Right. Um, and so that's that. And you guys had talked about in a previous co a podcast about um, pathologizing hypervigilance. And what you guys were actually talking about was vigilance, like that sort oh, of. Oh, yeah, the situational awareness stuff. Tra trauma exposure. I don't remember. Yeah. yeah, it was something like that. And the reality is, is that you guys are talking about vigilance, right? The So the Joe Schmo that doesn't sort of have that combat exposure or trauma exposure that first responders have, has what we call a normalcy bias, right? They might see it in the news, they might see it in other places, but it's not really going to happen to me because that's protective. It's scary as hell to think about you know, shit yeah, happening. Exactly, yeah. right? Why would you want to if you don't have to? Your brain doesn't want to think that hard. But what you guys, and typically people that come back, they have this sort of more vigilant, you know, like, hey, you know, I actually need to carry a TQ with me because I've been there and done that. Uh, and EDC is a good idea because uh, I've been in an area where I see that all the time. Um, and so the hypervigilance is when you can't turn that off. When you're not going to sleep at night, when even if you entered your house and swept the whole house, you for some reason, you can't sleep, 
right? So that's the difference. You know what I mean? That's that's that sort of, but that's that, like we, our bodies are great at elevating to that sort of response level. What we're not good at is getting back into the parasympathetic mode. When, when um, you know, I, I think about, uh, we, me and Kurt had discussed this on a podcast before. When, when I think about how, uh, in special operations where you train for stress and you train, you train for combat. There's instances where I remember like, you know, flying on a helicopter, going to land on the X, like right on top of bad guys. You know, it's, it's been defined that these guys have guns, they're suicide bombers or whatever. And we're all sleeping on the airplane or the, or, <laughs> yep. or the aircraft. And then it's like, Hey, everybody wake up one minute and then everybody yep. wakes up. And it, it seems to me that when you have somebody who's trained, and I, I haven't really seen it in first responders because even first responders, I've seen uh, even the most elite SWAT teams, they, there's kind of like an amping. But I've actually seen special operations teams that aren't amped at all. They yep. don't have a, we call it a jackrabbit. They don't have a jackrabbit amongst them. Everybody is like, calm, they're, cool. like they're calm and they're like shut down. And then that whole slow is smooth, smooth is fast. They're literally moving in slow motion, it seems. And um, what stands out to me is, you know, when it when you look at those guys and how they take trauma on, they take it and almost use it as fuel to fuel the aggression or the, you know, the the offensive operation against more bad guys. And like uh, when we lost Tung and uh, Tung Nguyen was a member of our company, uh, he was killed in Iraq when I was there in '06. Um, we, we were like, what do we do? And I was a young guy at the time. My team leader, Jason, was like, what we do is we get up and we get our kit on and we go out and smash bad guys. And the team sergeant was like, no, 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 we can't do that because the sergeant major said, you know, we have to decompress. You guys need to chill and everybody needs to compose himself. And Jason's like, we are getting on an aircraft tonight and we're going to go kill bad guys because that's what we do. Yeah. And sitting here feeling sorry for ourselves is not going to help anything. Right. And so is there... It, 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 Some science behind that. Well, there's got to be. It almost seems like, uh, like it's like we're psychopaths in a sense. It's mm. like I felt crazy. <laughs> I mean, when I think He's about like, it, hmm. it feels crazy to me because, like, well, that's like a jump too. Like you have a you have a uh, you know a bad jump, whether it's static line or free fall, and the SOP is you put a parachute on and you go right back up and jump again. Yeah. So yeah. there's no hesitation about what the job is. I, I just feel weird because, I, like, even when VA interviewed me, they're like, you have PTSD. How, what kind of trauma has, have you experienced? And I line it out, and they're like, oh, man, this dude is broke. And I literally know myself, and I'm good at illustrating how I feel. Hmm. And I'm like, that didn't affect me. I mean, I've had buddies die in my arms, and I'm like, it, it doesn't affect me that way. And I almost feel like, our community or how you get to that point where you take trauma like that and almost like turn it on its head is something different, something I haven't recognized before. So let me, let me intervene on that. So psychopath thing real quick. <laughs> um, so I, I, I didn't, I don't think I told you guys this, but I did work for a year in the uh, dangerously mentally ill facility, uh, special specialized facility up in Washington, working, working almost exclusively with psychopaths. So I, I, from a trauma perspective, almost every psychopath has a significant amount of trauma from childhood on up. And so, um, you're not, because there are very specific <laughs> things about that. But what we do do really well, Mike, is that we sort of take that um, reactivity, especially men more than women, but everybody does it. Everybody can do it. We don't do sad real well. 
we just don't, it doesn't, it's not functional for us, but we can turn sad into angry real quick yeah. or fear into anger real quick. And so what we do is um, from a psychodynamic, so like Freudian psychology, we sort of sublimate that sort of sadness or fear into aggression and anger because we can do we can something, do right? Yeah. We can do something and we've been trained to do that. So it's easy, it's low hanging fruit. And that's a, a lot of times why people who have significant PTSD are aggressive as hell. Not always, but right. it, you know, it makes a lot of sense though. I mean, if that's the, I mean, just, you know, from a, you know, a, a sex standpoint, whether male or female, but I mean, I can identify with that as far as like, Hey man, uh, I don't want to be sad. So I'm no. going to go smash something. Yeah. But is it because of the, I mean, is there because of specific events that, that turn it on its head and then they utilize anger to get, get it out of their system and then it's not there because residually, no, it's when I, there. cause when I, well, when I think about like. I, I, I'm looking for the reaction in myself going, when am I going to mourn over Tongue, over Justin, over Jason, all these dudes that we've lost in combat. And part of, you know, there's, I know what part of it is. Part of it is the justification for myself and for the guys that we are around, like Ben, who said out loud in front of me, like, if I get killed doing what I love, then that's a, a good death. And so I always go, hey, why should I mourn a dude who was doing at the pinnacle of his career, what he had a passion for, and then and then feel bad about the trauma that he experienced or even his family experienced, and I'm waiting for it, but it's just not there. So what we see typically a lot in, in memory processing is that what you're doing right there is what we call meaning making. And so like, well, why did these guys die? Well, the reality is that they've stepped up and volunteered to do this job. They were trained at, at, at the, you know, they're top tier guys and they're doing their, they're operating at the highest level of volume that they can. And the reality is that they died for something that's greater than themselves. And so a little bit about what you're, what you're talking about, there's a little rationalization there, but that not, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a protective measure. There's a reason why it's called defense mechanisms. And Mike, and the reality is, is that I think at least in our society, in general, the larger portion is that we have a tendency to over-index on life. Uh, value on life has to do with longevity rather than what you do in the time given. And so there's there's what you're describing right there is Mike like, well, wait a minute. Yeah, they're not, they're not there with us anymore, but they died doing what they wanted to do. So that's okay. And it might it might come out, dude. You might have some sleepless nights. You might get, get some nightmares, but that doesn't mean that you're you don't give a shit. It just means that you deal with it in a certain way. And for you, it works. Some other people, there might be things missing that they can't quite match their their memory up with their emotional content. And then all of a sudden, it goes, "What the fuck just happened? I don't understand. I'm missing something." And they keep replaying it over and over and over mm. again. And that's that disordered part. Yeah, that sounds dangerous. Yes. Yeah. Right. I just hate the broken aspect of it on either end. I mean, it's like no matter what your traumatic experience is, you should be broken psychologically. Is because I've been told that. I mean, you should be broken. Well, I'm not broken. Well, then you're a psych, well, not psychopath, but you're crazy. You're, yeah. There's something else That's there. Not, nah. And so it's like there's no balance in trauma, especially uh, we're talking injected trauma. Yep. We're, we're not talking about like you walk across the street and somebody see gets an accident, accident and you see yeah. it happen. Right. We're talking about 
I know I'm landing a uh, my feet on the top of a uh, you know an enemy safe house mm-hmm. off a fast rope with my guys with my with the, the guys. That I think the key term right there, Mike, is with the guys. Okay, so. Uh, my individual, like I, I, I had passed you that, that recent, uh, research that we did on, um, first responders and what we're conceptualizing a little bit better is that while we do have individual resilience, we also know that as a group, our resilience is shared. So, you know, if I, if, if we're driving down the road and we come across a mass casualty incident, I can go out and throw my EMT hat on and go to work. But if there's kids there, you know, I, I might, I might have, I might struggle, but I also know if you and Mike show up right beside me, all of a sudden my stress level will decrease significantly because I can trust you. I know that no matter what happens, even if the worst case scenario happens, you guys are not going to pop smoke and take off on me. So there's a sort of shared resilience, a trust there, which is another part of the reason why when we get out, we struggle. And that's because you don't have community. Yes. Well, and that changes also too. Um, I'm just I'm asking the question. It yep. changes the the way. The lower the stress, it changes the way you record that trauma, yes, right? Absolutely. The way, you, the way you take it, because you can, you know, if the the greater the amount of stress, the more fractured your memory becomes, the more difficult it is for you to let go or store away whatever you need to do with that memory. But the the lower the stress, the more I can go. Okay, Mike's got this. Kurt's got this. I got this. Nothing else. Whatever happens, we can handle this. Like it's cool, but. Um, the more stress, that's why that sort of, you talk a lot about breathing, you know, the, the sort of realization that, that antecedent and what we call an antecedent or a, I don't like the term, but the trigger keeps happening over and over again. But the more I know that, that I'm not alone, the less sensitive I am to that. And so the better I am, I'm able to abstract reason, right? My, 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 um, Prefrontal cortex, this huge portion of our brain that handles the sort of the that the thought that Kurt and Mike are here, I'm going to be okay because they're addressing these things. And if the worst case scenario happens, they're not going to beat feet. That's an abstract reason. I can't see it, and I don't. And and I, and I, it's a belief, right? If I lose that, all of a sudden I'm just going threat, not threat, threat, not threat, and I'm just going oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. Then I can't really take an accurate picture of my surroundings and what's going on, that's when disorder typically happens. What's the brain determination? Like, uh, how does your brain determine what's stress and what's not stress based on, does it assess like, hey, this is life-threatening potential? And so this this leads me into going to the uh, back of my mind and what's kind of like the science behind that when you like retreat and check out consciously? So now we're going to get in the rabbit hole. Because that's different for everybody, right? <laughs> so we can talk about biological vulnerabilities. Now, we used to think up until, I mean, it was literally this week that your vulnerability to trauma typically had to do mostly with your maternal inheritance from uh, your mother's traumatic experiences, stress at childbirth, etc. Now we know that's also passed on by your father. We just like literally. Wait, wait, what do you mean passed on? What do you? So you get certain genetic Im- 
imprints. Yes, you like we have we have biological vulnerabilities and tendencies towards cool. certain behaviors. Um, we it's not super super well understood yet, but maybe we can. I would say that the 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 common um, sort of threshold for biological inheritance of of certain behaviors is about 30%. So we know, like, for example, I'll just throw one out there that uh, if one of your parents are bipolar, you have an increased chance of inheriting that sort of behavioral the pathology, right? Right. It's the same thing for processing different things. And when we put get put in an environment, we have epigenetic factors, so stressors, nutrition, sleep, et cetera, that change our, how the way our DNA expresses proteins. And those proteins determine our behavior, our sort of endocrine system, et cetera, how it reacts to those those threats. And then we have unconscious processes like, you know, when you see a threat or a stressor, does it remind you of something that is stressful to you? Um, or does it not? Do you really don't have much of a, a, a much of a connection to it? You know, if you're let's say you're plugging holes in a child, you know, does that child look like your child? Do you have a child that's going to elevate your stress? Mm. Did you sleep that night? Have you slept in the last two weeks? What did you eat that day? All these things did, you know, determine because we, it's easy. Like I said, it's easy for us to elevate no epi, nor epi. It's no problem to dump, but we also have neuropeptides that sort of like GABA that sort of reduce our reactivity. If you're not eating and you're not sleeping, then you're not producing a whole lot of that either. And so you're going to be more hyperreactive and you may, you may, uh, react too strongly to stressors. And so what, and Growing up, being exposed to different stressors also sets what we call heuristics or schema or internal working models, meaning that when I'm stressed, I'm going to make cognitive shortcuts, stereotypes. And so what you guys might consider a stressor, uh, somebody that really hasn't lived a whole lot of life might <laughs> might really, really freak out about, we can kind of walk through it. You know, I, uh, I get injured through climbing all the time uh people that don't do anything or have exposure to that go oh man you just you know you 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 tore your shoulder apart and you did this and that you're not going to do that anymore right i'm like what that's not (laughs) right like what and so that that what you consider a life threat is relative to your experience and then relative to how you're perceiving the situation now when you when you when your system throws the switch, mm. and we talked about this, like uh, especially when it comes to like life or death mm. situations, when you throw the switch, is the switch committed? Like it's going down, no. or is or is there recovery from from that? So it's difficult, um, but it's not necessarily committed, right? Uh, uh, while our neurons are all our non reactions, there's we can control that somewhat. And you you guys talk a lot about breathing, and and so that you know the sympathetic nervous system is going to kick off. Um, unfortunately you have a fast and a slow response. So you have epi and norepi neurotransmitters, but you also dump them as hormones. And so that's that sort of, I'm, I'm activated, but then, you know, two hours later, you still might get the shakes a little bit. And that's why it's still residual within your uh, bloodstream. However, in the moment you can slow that down through deeper breathing. Cause if you can't, you know, there's that vagus nerve in there that will, trigger your parasympathetic nervous system but if your heart rate's pumping like a jackrabbit if you slow your breathing down your heart's going to have to match it 
And so that, but you have to be aware. So I talked about the antecedent, the triggers. You have to be aware of those triggers. And we call this sort of a behavior chain analysis. Aware of your vulnerabilities. Like biologically, I know I can handle certain things. I didn't sleep. I didn't eat. You know, I've been trained. Um, And you guys also talk a lot about training. And that is a big deal. Um, And we can go into that if you want um, deeper because that gets complex. Um, And then you recognize a trigger, recognizing the trigger, increasing the latency between trigger and behavior and looking at your consequences allows you to sort of look at your behavior in a much, much larger, broader scope. And so maybe you screw up, right? Maybe you like, oh, shit, you know, I, I, I overreacted to this. Let me break that behavior down. And you teach yourself like, wait a minute, here was my trigger. Let me reset that do it again. Yeah, I what the uh, the expression or the the narrative that I use in uh, gunfighting is if there's an imminent threat, like a person is pointing a gun at your face, um, it's going to set everything off. Right. And then when you draw that gun, uh, everybody has a, a technical expectation and training that they're going to drive that front sight like they do on the flat range. Right. When the reality is they're going to be target fixated. Yep. And then. In the in reality, they don't have enough time to transition their field of view in the first place to right. break that shot. The priority is breaking the shot over uh, a longer time to change your depth of field to the front sight. So don't. So I train that way. Don't so I wait. tell, yeah, don't wait. I tell them, hey, trust your alignment, drive the gun, break the shot, and then somewhere through the duration of the shots recoiling in your field of view, because I've literally had this happen. It's happening, and then at some point, become conscious or aware. And slow your breathing and try to slow everything down. Right. And so here comes the beauty of uh, mastery-focused learning. And so let's, let's take, for example, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use you guys for an example. Let's say all these beautiful people here want to learn how to do that proficiently, right? Let's say they go get training from you guys and you guys are barking at them all day and you're kind of putting them down and driving, driving it home. They're going to be mostly in a threat response. They're probably not going to retain a whole lot. They're going to be jumpy, et cetera, right? Kind of a military model. Like, it it, it really is. But we know, and, and then what happens when they fail? A lot of people have a tendency to sort of imprint that as I'm a failure, I'm a bad person, there's something wrong with me. But you guys don't take that approach. You guys, the reason why uh, I even initiated contact with you guys, because you guys really, really do take this sort of beginner mindset and we have expertise, but we know we learn just as much from everybody else as they can learn from us. And so there is an expectation, almost a don't take this the wrong way, a parental role there, a, a sort of gradual titration into stress, like, nope, let's work fundamentals. That wasn't quite right. It's cool. Let's do it again and again and again. And each time we're just going to increase the stress just a little bit. So the part of training here is that you titrate that stress. You get those fundamentals down. And all of a sudden, even when they're in the most stressful situation, you'll have that stereotype. You'll have that and I hate the term muscle memory, but I'm going to use the term engram. It is a behavior pattern, right? You get the behavior pattern, but then you also get what what we kind of talked about just a minute ago, that I know I'm stressed. What do I need to do? I need to slow down just even a couple milliseconds and not hyper-focus on my target, focus on what I'm actually doing, and you're able to slow that down better. But you guys, we, you know, in the military, we all kind of did it in a sort of – um, 
here and kick your ass in the deep end and figure it out. Yeah. Is there now? I associate like everything that you're saying in fight and flight as a primal function. Hmm. And the reason I tell people to slow down because I assume this is my assumption that when you go into an elevated state, it's not beneficial to cognitive function, to uh, appendages, to you know micro movements or thought processes, um, even visualization or um, you know any of the senses, because there's certain things primarily that happen uh, that that are meant to get you out of a bad situation with a tiger, with a right. predator. Exactly. Um, and then, you know, w- with you answering that, also, is there a time and place to turn uh, that on? Yeah. If I'm in the wood line and I am hunting, do I need to express, like, if, if the primal uh, survival mechanism is going to get me out of that situation to save my life, do I just let it ride? When do I know the difference between the two. So that's, you know, I think this is an acute situation. Let's say um, you're in a hand-to-hand fight and you, you're, you, the person that you're wrestling with has a knife and you've been cut. That might be a good time to just let that emotion ride and do whatever the hell you got to do to win that fight because if you don't, you're, you're done. done. But if there's fine motor movements there, if you are holding a lethal weapon and there is space between you and I, I have time, right? I have some space to do what I need to do. I need to stay calm. I need to stay mechanical. I need to do what I need to do. I need to problem solve because I have the space. But if Kurt and I are engaged in hand to hand. Sounds like it's like proximity based. Like the closer you are, the more dangerous it is. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. The what end it, state is worse. What if you come up on an MVA and there's somebody pinned underneath that car? Yeah. Your options are pretty limited. So you just let that go. emotion ride and lift somebody off, lift that car off just enough for somebody else to pull them up. Right. So, there, you know, there is a time and a place. And we call it so if we have distance, we can talk about problem focused coping. Like, right, I'm staying calm, mechanical. I'm uh, measuring my sight where I am. I'm not hyper focusing on a target. But if I Dude's on top of me, and I've already been cut once. Emotion focus, cope, and just tear him up. That's pretty awesome, like information. Like the fact that yeah. you could just break it down like that, where you understand that in close proximity, the further away you get, which is physical displacement, you have to use mechanical, technical skills, whether it be a firearm or, you know, J turning your, your car away from the bad situation. Right. Yep. Uh, that's uh, I've never even thought Not about running that way, towards but, it with uh, yeah. the, with Instagram on your phone. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I, that the whole proximity thing makes sense too because if if you're in a physical combatant attack and you're like tied up with somebody, there's a point in which you could surge, obviously with adrenaline and all these chemicals to get the upper hand. Exactly. And then just like a you know a good jujitsu practitioner where you where you're like now I'm getting into a technical battle because right. this person. I haven't knocked them unconscious with, you know, a blow to the jaw. Now I'm going to have to slow it down and yes. start moving around their back to put exactly. them in a choke. So th- th- these are two different elements that we talk about. We don't typically talk about it in this context, but I'm going to go ahead and use it because it applies. There is distress tolerance, right? There is and emotion regulation. So in that instance, if you are hurt and you and and whoever you're fighting gets upper hand, it may behoove you to go ahead and go and sit in that emotion. <laughs> but then when you gain control, calm the hell down. Cause you have now passed that distress. So calm down 
and move mechanically. But if you are in a serious, if you have a serious problem, you might really just have to freaking embrace that emotion and just go. It's, so you, we, you know, we had talked about this before, but breathing, I teach breathing as one of the uh, elements to kind of slow, coper. yeah, to, to slow the stress or slow the uh, anticipation. Uh, what else can people do that are under attack? I know, I know we like a practical exercise. Well, there's something kinda. else too, like a narration, right? Where we like subconsciously, I tell people to communicate to themselves, which is like creating a commentary for what's happening to be able to rationalize or slow things down. Is there something behind that? Is that I mean, what what is that? So the, what you're describing is a mantra, right? Like um, I'm going to repeat, I'm in control, or I'm okay, or I need to slow down. It re- does require the the awareness of the antecedent, the trigger that I am becoming elevated and I need to calm down. Um, and so that does require some. So to me, it, it, a lot of it falls back into training and repetition and and control. Like I'm doing this over and over again. I got this. Um, but there are other things, you know, you could, if you guys maybe transpose yourself into a, uh, into a sniper position where you might be threatened at the time, but did you, you say transpose yeah, ourselves in sniper positions? I did. I'm there. Okay. We're, we're that's, there. And that's exactly why I used you that just metaphor. Beamed up to right? This, easy. Right. You're shitting in a bag right and now. All, exactly. And you're smelling like piss, but it doesn't matter, right? You have your spotter and you're good, but maybe you're, maybe you're receiving fire. If you freak out, you're going to lose position and you're going to lose everything. Or compromise. Exactly. And so that's that sort of, and you can even, we call it mindfulness meditation. And Mike, you and I had talked about really kind of taking this and apply it in a practical sense. But focusing on your sensations that I can feel the ground pressing up against my thighs. I can feel the cold steel of the trigger on my finger. I can, fe- I can feel the reticle of the scope just on the side of my nose and grounding yourself in the moment rather than losing yourself in the environment. Um, and so that, in addition to your mantra, in addition to slowing your breathing down, really should enable you to sort of slow yourself down and bring yourself back into that problem-focused coping rather than being emotional. So there's something behind the, you know, this headspace thought of mindfulness and yoga and breathing and meditation. Absolutely. But in my opinion, there is also uh, evidence that suggests that mindfulness meditation you know, in this sort of uh, bedroom or, or, uh, or dark space isn't necessarily all that effective for men. And I think uh, we talk about culturally congruent interventions and we talked a little bit about range therapy. And I really think there's an, uh, an applied sense where if I know I'm, I, I like to shoot, it is comfortable for me. Let me work meditation into my range, into the long gun. I don't think it's great for a pistol, but long gun work. And that enables you to sort of, you know, slow yourself down, really embrace that sort of relaxed state and sit in a mindful, like ground yourself in the, in the here and now. What are, what are some other things as far as like men are concerned? I mean, you just use that as an example. Mm-hmm. What are some other things that you teach veterans or, you know, other folks that you treat, like yeah. as far as what you just described? So I, I do a lot of uh, positive masculinity and it, it is interesting when I bring that into the therapeutic space, a lot of people will react very, very 
Interestingly, when we talk about masculinity, but men and women do have in general, not always, but in general have some different ways of coping with things. And one of the ways that men have a tendency to be a little bit different than women is that we need that therapeutic space, but we do it differently. We experience therapy much better when we're working in addition to talking about Mm -hmm. things. We don't necessarily sit and talk all that well. We just don't really communicate that well, but we we do well when we'd be cleaning up the shop and talking and that's actually really therapeutic or out at the range or overlanding or hiking. Men have a tendency to be much, much better at doing that. And, um, it's, you know, uh, applying stoicism to emotional control, Mm. um, not avoidance of emotion, but accepting that it's there, accepting there's a right time and a place to express your emotions and not all over the place, but exhibiting some control in the right space and the right time. And so I have, a, I, I, I actually do quite a few just men's groups at, at the VA, which have been pretty, have done pretty well. That's well awesome. I, I like the long gun therapy, um, LGT. I like that because, <laughs> um, I'm just starting the branding LGT. campaign now because I think it, there's something behind it. I, I've always, you know, what's interesting is there's a lot of nonprofits that do a lot of work for veterans and for, for people in general that suffer from PTSD. And, and my whole thing is I, I don't even like to exclusively call it veteran uh, PTSD because everybody experienced trauma. Yes. And I hate singling out veterans yes. like the, the rest of society is immune from trauma. Everybody, everybody. There's not one person who hasn't experienced trauma in some way. Right. So when I look at therapy for people... Um, what I like about the shooting thing is you can go fishing, right? You, you throw the, the lure and, or you go outdoors, right? A lot of people go, hey, just getting the outdoors and it will change everything. Well, that's not true because mm-hmm. when you're in solitude, sometimes it's worse. Sometimes yeah. yes. all Get your trauma, your own head. you're inside your own head. Yep. So the way uh, that I've understood you know, this therapy through action or through uh, something technical is that when you're immersed in a task that, that requires your thinking all the time, right, to calculate wins, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to retrace, uh, to understand the placement of the reticle in your hold, uh, to have the right posi- uh, position, to control your breathing, um, to check your position. There's so many things, like, and I equate it to fly fishing, because t- fly fishing you can't check out. You just don't throw the bait and then sit there on the shore <laughs> thinking about your life and how much it sucks. You you technically are always are yeah. are active in this sense. And so the the fact that you did the long gun uh, that we've talked about the long gun therapy, I think it will help a lot of people in general uh, across the board. Right, and I um, we had started talking about that, and if I, I I'm going to lean on Kurt a little bit too. Think about mountaineering. I know you have a ton of experience there. When at, when you take off and you are in the middle of nowhere, you can't think about all the bullshit emails and, and yeah. past experiences because you got to find water. Yep. You got to get to altitude. You got to dig a hole. You, you got to paying attention to weather. Everything. Yep. yep. You got to, you, you got to land nav. You got to orient. You got to, you got to, how am I going to cook? Where, what peak do I need to reach at what time? Same thing as when you're zeroing in your rifle. These are the things that we lose when we kind of move out of this. Self-isolate. Right. But we, but we 
lose them when we're not in. We lose them when we're not in that situation where we we place ourselves in an adventure for whatever reason. It may be life or death. It might be just going to the mountains. Mm-hmm. But we lose that. We, we got all these other stressors in our life that we totally overblow and we overstress about. And when we're not is food, water, shelter, safety. Let's just focus on that the for basics. a little bit. The <laughs> basics and how beautiful the basics are, right? Um, or you can transpose that into that sort of um, the long gun. I, I like the uh, – we were actually thinking about this before, but I like this hybrid uh, format where we're going to do like the naked and afraid, and then we'll add the long gun. So you'll be naked <laughs> on your belly. With the long gun. Yeah. With the long yes. gun, with a crowd of people behind you, <laughs> and then you have to make the shot. Yeah. So there's kind of like – That's hot, man. The, the, I know. I'm, I'm excited I can't wait to it. be the dude pulling security at 6 yeah. o'clock. <laughs> Just make sure you put you, you laid directly down on an anthill. Yeah, you're good right? to go. Yeah, yeah. You're good giant, to a giant Arizona anthill. <laughs> oh, yeah. I dude. like it. I, I mean, like it. legit. Why do I have this imprinted image of you laying prone <laughs> naked in a field? I, I'm, now I'm going to dream about that. Now it's it's stuck in my sleep. brain. Thanks Imprint, for that. Imprinted. Hey, let's, that was traumatic. I just <laughs> want to throw that. Let's open it up to the, uh, the floor. If anybody's got questions, we'll actually take two questions. And if uh, nobody has one, I expect somebody to manufacture one. <laughs> Uh, but anybody have a question? Come on, come on up. This is our Phil Craft Tribe pilot. Um, he's actually been through some uh, stressful situations, including one where he had to save his family and his uh, his airplane because he's a pilot. Yeah. And uh, land on a remote road in the middle of nowhere. So um, yeah, have a seat. problem focused coping right there. That's not my only question. Just get it yeah. get it up in them. Um, there um, you go. Do you? Uh, it's more of a technical, maybe uh, sure analytical question. Yeah. Um, is the in science is like the government or VA studying brain re, brain mapping for those um, individuals that maybe can't cope uh, with uh, um, with with what they've seen? Are they looking at? Because uh, I've heard my wife's a social worker, but uh, I've heard that um, there's ways to try to remap remap the brain mm-hmm. to like their, to fire those electrons or whatever they're in the neurons, I guess. Yeah, so I, I can't uh, answer directly for the VA, but I can tell you that um, neuroscience in and of itself is doing a ton of work right now because I know that if you experience trauma, that your brain is going to change shape. There are going to be connections with some neurons that are pruned, that are that are dropped, and some connections between other neurons like in your periaqueductal gray or your ventral medial, P- ventral medial PFC, prefrontal cortex, that become thicker because you sort of um, experience it over and over again and you think about it over and over again. And that, but what stands to, the, the, which kind of sucks, but what, what is great about that is that if you can change it, you can change it back. And so we're trying to find out how best to do that. And we do have some information on that. Um, and we do, uh, um, therapy typically has a tendency, that's, that's our whole, from a neurobehavior's perspective, that's my whole goal, is to start to grow those connections again, make you more adaptive. So to answer your question, yes. Um, but the data, neuroscience is in a tough spot right now. Um, it kind of has a tendency to be the flashy term that everybody throws around, but it's, the brain is extremely complex. Um, and so, uh, data right now is kind of all over the place, but it is getting better. And it does suggest that your brain is incredibly 
plastic, which means it can and will adapt. How we're trying to figure out a little bit better, a little more discreet, but um, uh, we're getting, we are getting there. Cool. Yeah. Thank you guys. Yeah. Thanks for that question. Yeah. Next question. We'll take one more. Come on up, please. Hi. Hey. Um, so I work in a firehouse, okay. and some of my favorite times are at the firehouse. Yeah. And I've read that with military guys, first responders, when they retire, they have a hard time letting go of the trauma because it's so intermingled with the good times. Mm-hmm. Um, can you elaborate on that? So, like I said, I, I almost exclusively now work with first responders and vets, and I work more with first responders, actually, than I do with vets. And uh, we talked about this a little bit on the last podcast, but the first responders have a unique um, combination of primary trauma, secondary trauma, vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue, sleep deprivation, and, and um, extended wakefulness. And so what that has a tendency to do is not only affect your mirror neuron system, meaning emotional reciprocity between people, um, because you see people a lot, um, or first responders see people a lot on their worst day possible. Um, and they learn that avoiding emotional um, connection between people is, is uh, a good thing for them protectively. Um, but if, if we can liken um, psychological, because psychological trauma is biochemically almost the same as physical trauma. And so when, when um, that memory and those experiences just don't evaporate, it's in your memory some way, somehow. And if you don't deal with them, um, if they are causing damage and if they're causing distress, especially like Kurt had mentioned, it was when these memories that he didn't even realize he retained, he started to get when he got out. Because you're a firefighter, I need to deal with these things. When you're done, your identity shifts, your protective mechanisms shift, and all of a sudden you have to change and you don't know what that looks like. And so we see that it's actually kind of common. So do you think that, like when Kurt's talking about retiring, it all coming back. Do you think it's because he's going back to those good memories and all that crazy not, not, stuff is in there? Or? Not necessarily because that identity that he had as an operator conveyed some sort of protective measure. Like, I don't need to deal with this, right? I'm a firefighter. I cannot lose my shit when I'm 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 plugging holes and transporting or I'm in a low-angle rescue or whatever. I cannot. I need to maintain now I don't have that anymore. What do I do with these now? And so you, when, when you change identity, your defense mechanisms also shift. And so finding that, that balance between the two sometimes takes some work. Yeah, it's, it's also the shielding of esprit de corps that, you yeah. know, the brotherhood that you live in, which is the, the small tribe that you're a part of, you're like-minded. And so when you're around like-minded people, it serves as a, a mechanism for coping. And then when you're segregated from that, you lose your tribe. I mean, there's, there's a reason why me and Kurt started this tribe. One was to get a semblance in civilian society that there is a brotherhood slash sisterhood that exists amongst civilian life that makes us feel like we're back on the teams. And everybody's searching for that in some form or fashion. Uh, they express it differently, but everybody nowadays is searching for that kind of community. Um, 
and when you're part of that bond, especially, you know, first responding together, you understand it together. And then when you're isolated, you're alone. Uh, and there's a reason why, again, I mean, we're sitting in this room together. There's, there's probably a specific reason what, what brought us together, which is we, we were looking for that community. And now that it's part of us, it helps uh, in knowing that you have people to your left and right that could share in your burden. And, and th that's a big, you know, a big uh, thing that me and Kurt dealt with, which was, hey, we had plenty of people to share in the burden because they, they experienced it. Now we're isolating ourselves. And then we realized, hey, human beings are human beings just because they were trained in special operations doesn't mean I could share, I, I don't have to retain and hold this burden. I could share it with civilians and open up because we're all the same. Exactly. And so I had mentioned the individual resilience, but I also talked about group resilience. And you lose that group resilience because we have a tendency to sort of put this, this false um, individuation between us and them first responders and non-first responders, veterans and non-veterans. And the reality is that they, civilians are much more alike uh, than they are unlike uh, us. They will probably, they, they can adapt to that just as well as we can for the most part. And so instead of isolating ourselves in small communities, we need to be much, much better at integrating ourselves in a larger community because we're not different. We're not. We're, we're just like everybody else but our experiences are just a little bit different. But the more we isolate ourselves, the sicker we become. And that's just, that is that is just biology. Thank Thanks you. For that, thank you for that question, Kurt. Um, hey, I just want to say uh, thank you, Jeff, for coming on the podcast. That was, I mean, that was the fastest hour of my life because I'm <laughs> super interested in it. I'm like inside you. <laughs> I, I just so hot. I, it's so hot. I, I just, I, I'm mind blown by the way that you can communicate it to where... Uh, you just make it simple to where I can understand it. And, it was awesome. And I know cool, a, a lot of people are going to get a lot of stuff uh, out of this, and we'll continue to have these podcasts because we could dissect all this stuff, and I want to. So yeah. thank you for coming on, Jeff. Yeah, anytime, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, man. Hey, so just a uh, big shout-out to Altama, to Rigid Industries, to Truck Vault, um, to all of our sponsors who've kind of supported the expo, who support uh, our network and our tribe uh, with, you know, whether it's product, marketing, or just being good friends of, of the company. Thank you very much for supporting us. Uh, Rigid Industries just sent a guy out here, uh, Anthony, to show up to show the lights, and uh, we appreciate stuff like that. Anybody else we're missing? Yeah, cool clothing, uh, Icon Suspension. Uh, I think you mentioned some other folks. Falcon Tires. Triarch. Yeah, Triarch Systems. We're running their pistols right now. Always super appreciative of the you know the relationships that we build with other businesses and how they support Fieldcraft. So thank you guys, we appreciate you, and we're looking forward to doing more in the future. Hey, so, so tonight we're doing a charity for Labs for Liberty. We typically do a charity every expo. Uh, that's kind of going to be a staple. Uh, but I just want to throw out for anybody interested in donating uh, to this nonprofit. It's the same nonprofit that gave me Pearl, uh, my service dog, and. Uh, actually, uh, Kurt has his sister, Storm. But you guys could donate. They provide service dogs, physical, uh, disabled, and mentally um, disabled people with service dogs, anybody. It's not just first responders and veterans, anybody. Free of cost. Um, if you like to donate, you could donate money to PayPal at labsforliberty.org. That's labs, L-A-B-S, for F-O-R, liberty.org. Uh, and we appreciate, uh, you know, any help that you can give 
that nonprofit who's helped us a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I have anything else. You got anything? No. Yeah. Thanks again, Jeff. Appreciate yeah, having you on the podcast. That was friggin' enlightening. So I'm excited to do more of those. Cool. Yeah. Anytime, guys. Let's give a round of applause for yeah. Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, All guys. Right. That's it. Uh, until next time. Stay alert. Stay alive. <laughs> <laughs>